Bible with you, you can open this morning to a new book we're going to be going through, the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah, is, you may say, why Jonah? One reason is I've just had it on my list uh, since really we even began our church, thinking this is just a very important book of the Bible for us to consider as a church that is the sent people of God. And so Jonah is one of the uh, rare prophets in the Bible that is not primarily giving us the prophecies that Jonah speaks, but telling us the story of the prophet himself. And so as we each week want to place ourselves and where we're at in the story of God as God's called and sent people, uh, I think we're going to see a lot in the life of Jonah that resonates with us. If you're like me, you might see as I've studied this and reflected on it, you might even be shown a little more than you want to know. But the good news is, is that Jesus is already there. Wherever the Spirit's going to lead you, whatever sin that He wants to show you, whatever suffering He wants you to bring to Him to be healed of, Jesus is already there and He is holding us. He will not let go of us. And sort of the uh, subtitle we want to focus on in this series, so if Jonah and, and the story of his life is the main thing, the book of the Bible, is this sort of theme of when the messenger of God becomes the, mis the mission of God. Or you could say it this way, when the one that is God's missionary is revealed to be just as much God's mission. And if that doesn't make sense to you, hopefully it'll make a little more sense to you before we end today. And as we go through this series, it will force all of us to realize that we are ever bit as much the target of God's grace and love as anyone out there in the world that we may be seeking to bring that good news to. So let's read Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, again away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, these sailors, these professional fishermen, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
Then they said to them, to him, what, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord. They called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today through your Holy Spirit to help us to be present, to be those who listen, not for the words of man, but for the words that is yours. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us to hear what we need to hear. We trust you to take the truth of your word and to penetrate our hearts, but we realize that all of us in here may need to hear things a little differently. We pray, Spirit, for timely applications of your word that are spoken and maybe are unspoken. I ask you, Father, that you would not let us merely hear a lecture today, not merely hear a message, but that we would each have a gracious, sincere encounter with you through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About five or six years ago, uh, me and my wife, who's not in here, kind of set out on a journey that we felt was God's great call on our lives to be a part of the next step of the mission that he had called us to. And as many of you know, we, we sold our home that we were very comfortable in, and we left to move to a, to a new city in Arkansas where we would be trained in what it meant to not just be a church that gathered on a Sunday and, and had a good event, but actually was a church that made disciples in the stuff of everyday life that was organized and structured around being the people of God who knew one another and who loved one another and whose love that we experienced from God and with one another spilled over into a world that needed the grace of God. But moving there was, was a, a, a shock to the system in ways that I cannot even begin to explain this morning. But want to try a little bit. Having been a, a pastor for many years, having had different titles, different positions, different areas of influence and opportunity. I found myself working as a person in a factory who was putting parts on a shelf, who had, and no offense to the younger people in here, who had a, a person who was training me and over me who was 18 years old. So me around 40, him around 18, and he's telling me what to do. 
And I'm thinking, here we are, called on God's mission, called to go and see other people experience the grace of God and be trained to do that. But then when I go home, some days it just feels like a total disaster. Like here we've moved to do this. I'm at work. This is horrible. I'm angry thinking, how in the world did I end up here? I come home. Some days it feels like, am I going to still be married by the end of the day? Other days, am I, am I going to be arrested for, for maybe harming my children? And then we're a part of this church that in many ways we had idealized what it would be like to be a part of. And the more we're there, the more, we're, the more we see. It's just full of, of human beings that are everywhere. Who are imperfect. Who are broken. Who are needy of grace. And it's easy to begin to fantasize about what it would be like to, to have a life where you just didn't get tangled up in all of this God stuff. In all of this mission stuff. In all of this grace stuff. And I think what was the most humbling part of all of it was thinking that I was rearranging my life as I thought, reorienting my life to go and help others experience the grace of God. And I found myself looking in the proverbial mirror seeing I need God's grace more than anyone else. I want to help other people share their feelings, but I don't want to share mine. I want to help other people have their needs met, but I don't want anyone else to know my needs. I want to be the helper, but I don't want to be helped. I want to be the missionary. But man, it stinks when I find out I'm the mission. If you've been following Jesus for any time, and whether you've been aware of this or not, is you will realize that ever bit as much of your call to be a missionary, a sent one for Jesus, you are just as much his mission as anyone else. In some ways, we're all prone to designate ourselves as his messengers, his missionaries, his disciple makers, but then we can become very resistant. We can become bitter. We can become resentful. When God graciously shows us our deep need of His grace ourselves. Has anybody else in here ever experienced that? Sometimes we think out loud. Most of you have been here before, so you're used to that. Anyone else in here ever experienced briefly a time in your life when it was like, Wow, I need God's grace as much as anyone else does. Thank you. Anybody might give a season. You discovered that event. Briefly. Val <laughs> says now. <laughs> Any circumstances there you want to share with everybody? No, you don't have to. understand grace. 
I will will guilt you into understanding grace. (laughs) Anyone else? Yeah, that's a big one. Marriage, children, any type of relationship, new roommates, has a way to bring this stuff out. What we're all called to see and what Jonah, I believe, teaches us is God is not just interested in using us to get the mission done, but He loves us and is committed to using the mission to get us done. I'm going to say that again. God is not just interested in using us to get the mission done. God loves you and is committed to use the mission to get you done, if that makes sense. He is just as concerned about what He does in you as what He does through you. And the Gospel tells us that He he is able to do so much more through us when we humble ourselves to let Him do the work in us. But we have to humbly embrace the fact that we are not just God's missionaries, but we are all God's mission. We have to humbly embrace that. We are not just God's missionaries. We are not just God's messengers. We are not just God's tools or instruments. We are His workmanship. We are His mission. We are His beloved children who He wants to see grow up into His grace. So what does this look like for Jonah, at least in Jonah chapter 1, as we think about it through this book? The first thing is what reveals our hearts so clearly is God's mission field is when God crosses a line in our life. And we may not realize it, but all of us have these lines in our life where we have said, I'm not going to go there. I've got them. I've got more than one. And you've all got them. The fact is, some of us don't know that we have them. And God's going to show us that. And it's going to sting. How does God's call to Jonah for mission reveal him as the mission? We see, first of all, he receives this clear word from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, Jonah was a prophet. There's not a lot about, about him said outside of this book, but we can go to 2 Kings 14, 25, and we see that he was a prophet of God. So this wasn't just like a, a regular guy out having a Saturday afternoon stroll and, you know, maybe ate too much biscuits and gravy in the morning and is starting to hear things. Right? He is a prophet. He receives words from the Lord. This is a clear word from God. This wouldn't have been like Jonah saying, Whoa, what just happened to me? But it's going to be a curveball nonetheless. Because it's not just what God says to us, and today says to us clearly from His Scriptures, through His Spirit. It's also when He says it to us. There are things in here that you can believe so much easier on one day than you can believe on another day. And the clarity of God's Word doesn't change, but the confusions in our heart changes very big time when we're going through certain situations or when God calls us to do certain things. And Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet, as I said, from 2 Kings 14, 25, we learned, who he prophesied of the restoration of Israel that would come through King Jeroboam. He was a prophet, as it were, of the restored glory of the nation of Israel. This is going to be important today, but it's also going to be important as we go through this book. Jonah's sort of ministry and mission was wrapped up in saying, 
God is going to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. He is going to bring glory to his people. Israel will, will be restored and will be victorious. And then he receives this call. And where is this call? God says in verse 2, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you may realize that Nineveh is the capital city of a place called Assyria. And Assyria was not Israel's friend. Assyria was a major enemy. They were racially different. They were religiously different. And Assyria was radically evil. I'm not going to read off the list of things. I will just give you some homework. But Assyria was an evil, enslaving, ravaging, raiding people who would do horrible things like slaughter families in, in front of People and do these things like we hear today in third world countries. I actually have members of the family kill their own family members. I mean, and, and they would they had this history with Israel of great oppression. And we just kind of need to feel that a little bit. You know, it's easy for us to kind of point the finger at Jonah as we read this, but if we're honest, we, we can have a lot of sympathy for Jonah. Jonah's whole life and ministry has been one of where he's been told by God to prophesy the redemption and restoration of Israel. And now God is saying, I want you to go and it sounds like do ministry to one of our greatest enemies that represent and stand against everything we're not for. So how does Jonah respond? So he's called to arise and go to Nineveh, but... Verse 3 says he, he rises and he goes to Tarshish. Now if you were to look at a map, Nineveh's going this way, Tarshish is going this way. So God says go, I can't remember which one it is right off the top of my head, God says go east, Jonah says I'm going west. And it's repeated twice in this text in verse, two, verse 3 that he flees not merely from a place but from a presence. It's emphasized that he is intent on fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because he knows where the, the presence of God is, the, the call of God is. He doesn't want to be reminded of this. It's kind of like, you know, when you're around, sometimes we choose to not be around certain people because maybe they've known, they've asked, we've, they've asked us to do something and we don't want to do it. And it's like, even if they don't say it again, it's kind of being around them just makes me uncomfortable. He doesn't want to be in the presence of the Lord, and he wants to get out of town because you know what? Also, he doesn't want to be around the people of the Lord. Because the people of the Lord remind him of the presence of the Lord. And he, he knows the story. He knows his Bible. The presence of the Lord is found where the people of the Lord are. Saying, leave me alone. I just want to get out of town. I want to get somewhere to where I don't have to think about what God's called me to do. 
Why does he respond this way? Well, it's, he's probably thinking it's practically pointless. You see, what's unique and how we can have sympathy for Jonah here is that we're, we're used to seeing in these prophets him called to prophesy against other nations. If you read through the, the, the minor Old Testament prophets, that happens a lot. What's unique is that Jonah's not merely called to prophesy the judgment of the Lord on the people of Nineveh. He's called to go there and do it. So, again, feel the sympathy. Jonah, I want you to go to this place that hates you and your people and tell them of their great evil. Sorry, God, you just crossed a line. That sounds practically pointless to me. But it also was theologically ridiculous to him. These are evil people. Just wipe them out, God. What I think is so interesting here is that Jonah does not only know the evil of the people of Nineveh, he also knows the grace of God. We're going to see that it's not just me making a guess, but particularly when we get to chapter 4, we'll see this. Is Jonah knows the kind of God God is. And we're in the Old Testament here. Some people like to say, well, there's New Testament God, Old Testament God. No, there's one God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, gracious and compassionate, ready to forgive. And Jonah knows, he's a prophet, and sometimes we don't realize this, that with every warning God gives of judgment, that warning in and of itself is an act of grace and a call to repentance and restoration. We see this, God's not ever just saying, you're going down. But Jonah knows that when God says judgment's coming, he's issuing an opportunity for people to return and repent. Jonah knows very well they're very sinful, but at the same time, God is very sovereign. And if I go to these people and I tell them of the judgment God's going to bring upon them, I know what kind of God is, and this might end up at the end of the day where they all repent and are rescued and they don't get judged. And I want them to get what's coming to them. I want it Israel's glory. I don't want Nineveh's restoration. I don't want them brought into this story of redemption and grace. And so he runs. And I want us to notice the irony in this. Jonah has a view of God that says, I believe you could change this wicked and evil city by the power of your sovereign grace, but I don't think you can change me enough to go and share the gospel with them. I believe you could take a wicked capital city of the empire of Assyria and change them, but you have crossed a line in my heart that I believe you are not sovereign to change. This is true of all of us. Our, our, our beliefs in God, our theology gets so tested when it actually becomes about us. All of us in here beginning with this guy, we have a vision of a big God for everybody else. Everybody else's situation, everybody else's marriage, everybody else's relationship, everybody else's brokenness, everybody else's hardship, everybody else's inability to trust God. And then God asks us to cross a certain line, and we're like, see ya. We have these pop phrases in our cultures at certain times that become popular. Uh, somebody was saying some of these the other night. 
and it reminded me. And if you're, you'll have to be a little older to remember some of these, but I want y'all to help me. Remember, was up. Does anybody remember those commercials? I made that my best attempt at that. And then I remembered this one, as if. Can anybody remember any of these other sort of popular phrases that come through culture? If you're younger, you can keep get me up to date. Anyone? It's hard when you have to put on the spot, isn't it? You'll think of them the rest of the day. One of them I think that was maybe more recently is, is this one. But did you die? Right? Was that not something that was was going around? Anybody confirm that? Yeah, I see some I see the I see those heads. I see those hands. Here's here's one I found in the church over the over the course of my life. And I found in my own heart when God calls that calls that line. You know what it is? But I'm not Jesus. I want you to do this thing that I'm calling you to do. I want you to forgive this person. I want you to, to go this route. I want you to, to move into this neighborhood. I want you to, to, to take this job. I want you to, to love this person. I remember this was one of the things is in our time in Arkansas. This is what brought this to my mind. As, as we were really trying to lean in and to, to love people for the first time in these close relationships, and I noticed that phrase being repeated over and over when I would talk to people, is they would say, I would, you, we're calling you to follow Jesus and the stuff of everyday life and to believe that, that through the power of the Spirit you can do what Jesus did. And a gut reaction was, but I'm not Jesus. When we say a phrase like that, when we deny the power of God in our own hearts but believe the power of God for everyone else in the world, we need to see that whether our legs are moving, whether we're trying to buy a ticket for a boat to the other side of the world, we are running from the presence of God. I want you to think in your own mind right now, where do you think God has crossed a line in His assignment for you in life? And you all have an assignment. Your assignment and sometimes is a call on your life. Your assignment sometimes is just a circumstance God has left you in. There are clear words maybe he's given you. Like, I'm going to ask you to forgive that person. I'm going to ask you to be warm and welcoming to that person. I'm going to ask you to, to just obey any command of Scripture. These clear words, really as clear as Jonah received. But then there's circumstantial words. I'm going to ask you to stay in this job that you might not like. I'm going to ask you to endure this trial that you would have never chose. Deep down, you're just thinking, God, you got the wrong address. I'm reading my mail you sent me here, God, but you just must realize this wasn't the right house because I can't do that. And underneath your I can't do that is your I'm not going to do that. It reveals our faith, our real belief. See, Jonah's problem wasn't really mainly with the assignment God gave him. His problem was with the one who gave it. Notice, he's not just running from the mission. He's running from the presence of God. He is very uncomfortable with a God who would call him to do things that he doesn't believe he can do. 
But from Genesis to Revelation, we have God who calls us to do what we cannot do with what we do not have. Maybe he believes things like I believe sometimes deep down. God couldn't be good and ask this. God couldn't understand me. Maybe the worst one. I think I'd be a better God. I think if I was in charge of this world or in charge of my life, in charge of my home, in charge of my vocational direction, and I think I could do this better. When we're there in our heart, whether our legs are moving or not, whether we're the most active servant person in our churches, whether we're the most dedicated people in our jobs, whether we're the most uh, happy people in our houses, we're running from God. Sometimes we don't, it's why we don't read God's Word. Because we're just afraid. Why we don't create time in our life to sit and be silent before the Lord is because we know how God is. He goes there. We don't want to. It's why we write certain people off or are cold to them. Because we don't like what they bring up in us. And we know what God's going to say about what they bring up in us. What we realize is that we believe people are created in the image of God, and we believe if they are children of God, the Holy Spirit of God indwells them. So we need to realize, if you write somebody off, and you say, I'm, I'm not going to be loving to this person, you have ran from the presence of God. To have a list of people in your life, particularly those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you say, I'm only just going to tolerate being around you when I have to. When you're near, I'm going to just, you know, make it as fast and quick. You're running from the presence of God. So we're running. A lot of hard news there. But there's good news. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now what do we see? How does God respond to Jonah's running from him. He runs to him. This is amazing. This is the good news of the gospel of our God of grace. Is we are all excellent runners, but God is a better runner than you are. We run hard against his call sometimes. We run hard against his commands. I mean, we just blatantly don't want to be in his presence. We want a ticket for the other side of the world, away from his presence and away from his people, and he's a good father, and here he comes. And he comes in the storm. He runs after his chosen, called child. And notice, he's not running to punish him, he's running to rescue him, but it certainly looks like and probably feels like punishment. We've got to have a category for that. God's not running to punish him, but in his discipline of grace, it certainly feels like punishment. It certainly looks like everybody's getting caught in the wake of his sinful rebellion and may very well be destroyed. I remember one time, and, and don't judge my mom on this, this wasn't a bad encounter, 
But I remember one of the worst whippings I ever got as a kid was when I threatened to run away and made some actual steps towards doing it. I remember, I don't know, my brother had royally made me mad. I think it was one of the first times I'd said a curse word out loud in front of adults. And I was just so ashamed and I was upset. And so I'm like, we're over at my grandma's house and I'm just thinking, I'm getting out of here. I don't want to be around any of these people anymore. My brother's just a pain in the neck. My parents don't understand. And I'm mad at myself. All y'all, all everybody does here is bring out the worst in me. I'm not this bad of a person, but y'all are jacked up and I'm gone. And all my little probably 10 to 12 year old heart can muster up. And what's side note that's weird is I took a bandana and tied it around a stick because I saw that in a movie. Y'all remember that? So I like put me some crackers in there and I was at my grandma's. She always had like Kit Kats in the drawer and Cokes. And so here I go. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a bad curve. Not a, not a highway, but a bad curve, kind of a dangerous road. And I'm going to get, I'm gone. Of course, I don't know where I'm going, <laughs> what my next steps are, right? I just know my next step's anywhere but here. And I remember getting up there on that dangerous curve and my mom, not a very super athletic person, she comes after me. And then she gets me and drags me in the house and she takes me to my uncle's bedroom who still lives there and she opens the closet door and it was as if I was in a medieval torture chamber in my mind. Because here all of his leather belts are hanging on this, on this, this belt rack. <laughs> And my mom didn't do much of the, much of the spanking around our house, but uh, she, was, she was royally and righteously ticked off. Because in her mind, she saw that her baby boy was about to go ruin and devastate and potentially kill himself in the attempt to save himself. I won't tell you how it went, but I still remember it. Now, regardless of what danger I might have actually been in, my, my thought and my mindset in the middle of all that would have been, just leave me alone. And she could have very well said, and in a world like ours today, many people might say the loving thing to do is just leave people, just leave them alone. You know, if they want to go walk out in traffic, well, it's their choice. But that's not how biblical family love works. The love of the father is a father who goes after us. And in the middle of that, I wasn't saying, oh, mother, thank you for your discipline. I was thinking, why do you hate me? I'm getting to that age now. It's hard to hear that from your kids that word but that's what we think sometimes when the Lord pursues us when our unwillingness to, to be submitted to the work he wants to do in us but sometimes if we're honest we're thinking God why do you hate me but it's great in my story to have parents who love me enough to let me think they hated me and keep loving me and no matter what your story and your biological family history, you have a father through Jesus Christ who loves you enough 
to pursue you when you don't want to be pursued. He's coming after us. He's committed to work in you and not just through you. Does, does God need Jonah? He doesn't need Jonah. He's got all kinds of other people and prophets. He could have easily just said, if my mission is just to see this happen in Nineveh, I'll just call Billy Bob over here to go do it. If Jonah wants to leave, let him go. I've got all these other people who can do this. Is this not amazing? God doesn't need any of us in here today. I could renounce the faith and walk away and get a ticket for the other side of the world, and guess what? The world would probably be just fine. And God could have somebody else do his work. God doesn't need you. But there's good news, better news. He wants you. He cares just as much about you as his mission as he does about all the other things in the world that need to be taken care of. That's why we hear words like this in Hebrews. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons or as the children of God? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved of him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. It's for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as his children. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall not much more we be subject to the Father and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. The Lord wants to train us through his discipline but we have to submit ourselves. So the last thing, there's always so much more to cover here and always 10 minutes behind. But it's good to have a Bible and a God who is inexhaustible. There's my excuse so that you don't dislike me and my idolatry of your approval. The rest of the chapter, I'm not going to read it all, is this. What does God's heart Revealed what is revealed about God's heart to all of the other people, though, in our lives and in the world that need his grace and need his work while we're trying to get out of town. Now, this is amazing, and this really blew my mind as I studied this this week. While people are dying, Jonah is checked out, right? He's already done. He's like, I'm done. I'm just, he's maybe either so exhausted because of his rebellion and his emotional turmoil that he's not even noticing the storm, 
Or maybe he's down there, you know, doing like me sometimes when I need to get up, right? Like, I don't care. Everybody can just die as far as I'm concerned. These, these pagan people who could care less about the true God, they're like running around saying, we need to be saved, we, can be, we need to be rescued. Kind of like today, like if there was people that don't even follow Jesus and they're running around saying there's all these need in the world and, 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 and the person running from God is like, well, I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm done with God. He crossed the line. So they, they call to Jonah and they're like, get up. What's wrong with you? How can you be sleeping? Who, who, who are you? And he tells them who he is. Again, he, he's not saying anymore, just the basics. And, and then they say, what do we need to do to stop this storm? And it's as important what Jonah doesn't say as what he does say. He doesn't say, what we need to do is I need to repent and be obedient to the call of God on my life. He doesn't say that. He says, throw me over the side and kill me so the storm will stop. Man, I've been there. My gut reaction is like, how can we just get this over with? Because I, it's like it's not even in his mind. And so, if you were to read through the rest of it, we read through it earlier, they actually don't want to do that. It says, click, click on down there a little bit, Chris. One more. One more. All right. So he says, throw them in. It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. So they're like, Dude, we're not going to throw you over the side of the boat. We're going to, at least going to try. So in this sense, this is like, what do you do when the world that doesn't believe in the true God actually is, like, better than you in their character? They're actually nicer, more gracious, and you're the one on the boat here that's been called to represent him. And he's just thinking, I just get rid of me. And then it ends in this amazing way, verses 14 through 16. They're like, they, they start to pray to the Lord. All caps in your Bibles means Yahweh, the personal, true God of Israel. And, and they're like, we're going to do this, but we, we want to do this, Lord. We want you to know we're just doing this because your prophets told us to. And they throw him into the sea, and the sea stops. And then notice this. These are not throwaway words. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. That is, this wasn't just like we're afraid. They were afraid earlier. This, it's this biblical language that's being used here of, of now they fear the Lord. And how do we see? Oh, maybe you're stretching that. No, look. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They say, God, we, we need you to forgive us. We need your substitution in our place. We need your work for us. And they made vows. That is, they committed themselves to him. What is really good news in all this? In the midst of all Jonah's broken rebellion and saying, I'm not going to go take the gospel to the nations, God just saved people from the nations. Isn't that amazing? That even in the middle of our very imperfect following of Jesus and sometimes our very obstinate defiance of Jesus, 
that God is still able to work through us. If it wasn't for that, I think I would just quit and go home. Our disobedience affects other people. There is no doubt. We need to grieve its effects. But we need not give up because there is a God who loves people, who is working in other people's lives. So we don't have to jump ship, but we can come home to Him. And how do we do this? We do this as we prepare to come to the table. We do this because we have the power of a greater Jonah. There was one who was called to a mission, not just to an evil city, but to an evil world. Full of people that had nothing to do with him. Full of people who not only was their potential, if I go there, they will kill me, but he knew when I go there, they will kill me. And he came to proclaim to us the fact that the wrath of God rested on this world for its sin. But he did something that Jonah not only wouldn't do, but couldn't do. Is not only did he come and proclaim the judgment of God, he came and he took the judgment of God that we deserved upon himself. He was not resentful of God's grace towards us. He was the, the instrument and the embodiment of God's grace to us. He didn't run from the mission of the Father. He was in perfect unity and eternal commitment to the mission. And he came to us, Jonas. Us Ninevites. Us runners. And he captured us. And he brought us under his victory and brought us into his resurrection. This is the good news that we must come back to every time it is very clear that we are just as much God's mission as anyone that we feel like we can. God's not saying, get it together. God's saying, I came for you. I'm just as committed to the work in you as the work through you. But will we humble ourselves, will I humble myself to receive that for the rest of my life? Will we humbly embrace that we are not just God's missionaries, but God's mission? Father, thank you for the good news that is ours in Christ. We come now to your table. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to not only have heard the gospel, but to see it and even to taste the good news that you have come for us and empower us now to go on the other side of those lines we've drawn in the sand through the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.